Heiny, 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 heiny brothers coffee. Heiny, 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 heiny brothers coffee. Heiny, heiny. At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heiny Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hey everybody welcome to the past and the curious my name is mick sullivan i'm the host and creator and i appreciate you spending some time with us hope you enjoy now if you're listening to this in the month of july you probably know, certainly you know, that it is National Hot Dog Month. And so we decided that we would wrap up some history in a few hot dog tales. So buckle up. We've got some good friends. Mr. Eric from What If World Podcast is going to read a story that I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, You'll also hear the voice of my friend AJ Cornell. And instead of me making music this month, my good friends, some of my best friends in the world actually, Big Mama Thorazine. They have a song that is a perfect fit. So, enjoy, and try not to get too hungry. If stories about dead whales happen to make you hungry, I guess. Some people say Charles Feltman invented the hot dog. But that's a hard thing to prove. There's a restaurant near my house in Louisville, Kentucky, that claims it was where the cheeseburger was invented. Now, is it true? No one can really say for certain, but everyone still loves to talk about it. The point is, a lot of claims about inventions are made. But when there is little information or proof, or proof that has been eaten, I guess, uh, it becomes more lore than fact. And as far as hot dogs go, people have been eating meat in casings, like sausages and frankfurters, in lots of ways for a long time. But it does seem like Feltman was among the first, if not the very first, to put a frankfurter in a bun. He called it the Coney Island Red Hot, after realizing that the tourists at Coney Island, well, they'd appreciate something that they could eat with one hand and no utensils. And he was right. At the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, Coney Island was perhaps the most unusual place on Earth, and easily the largest amusement area in America. Among three different amusement parks, there were the first roller coasters and beautiful hand-carved carousels. Bright lights and loud music dominated the themed hotels and vaudeville theaters. There was even a giant building shaped like an elephant. Millions of people flocked to the shores, wearing uncomfortable wool bathing suits as they splashed in the Atlantic Ocean and ate Feltman's handheld hot dogs, which were 10 cents apiece. But they didn't just enjoy the place by daylight. Coney Island was electric, and the fun extended well into the night. And probably not how you would guess. As far back as 1878, the bravest of visitors took part in something called electric bathing. This questionable activity involved tall poles being mounted in the water. These poles, again, out in the water, were topped with new 
exciting, and electricity-carrying light bulbs, providing just enough dim light to allow people to swim in the murky waves of the Atlantic against the pitch black of night. An article from the era in the New York Times refers to these swimmers as lunatics. We'll just say we think it's a bad idea for a number of reasons. In 1912, Nathan Handwerker crossed the Atlantic Ocean to escape religious persecution in Europe. The 19-year-old immigrant landed in New York and found his first job in America making luggage. Somehow, the young man knew food was his ultimate destiny, and he took a pay cut to work in a restaurant. It was Charles Feltman's restaurant, which by now had a long history of hot dogs in Coney Island. He worked his tail off, preferring to be working rather than sitting idle with free time. He was young and ready to make his place in the new world, and by 1916, he decided that place was a hot dog stand of his very own. Much to Feltman's dismay, he opened this hot dog stand directly across the street from his former employer. People wondered how he could possibly compete with Feltman's. They had a reputation built on decades of hot dogs, hundreds of thousands of hot dogs. Nathan wasn't worried, though. For one thing, Nathan would work harder than just about anyone, and he knew it. He'd literally work around the clock. Why, some nights he slept there, and if someone walking by wanted a hot dog in the middle of the night, he didn't mind if they woke him up. He'd fix him up some late-night hot dogs. The other, more important thing that he did was charge half of what Feltman charged for a hot dog. That's right, in 1916... One nickel was all it would cost to chow down on one of Nathan Handworker's hot dogs. Now, at the turn of the century, there was some question about the quality of hot dogs. You see, a particular sort of writer, called the muckraker, began to get people's attention. These muckrakers would often use spy-like tactics to learn how certain industries operated. In a time with few rules about how to conduct business, many factories were guilty of allowing cruel, unfair, or just plain gross things happening behind their doors. Around this time, a muckraking journalist named Upton Sinclair wrote a book called The Jungle, which taught many Americans not just about the terrible and unsafe conditions for workers in meatpacking plants, but also some of the... um gross stuff that actually wound up in the meat. Trust us, it wasn't pretty. Or healthy. Or really sanitary. So these ideas made people mistrust the hot dog, especially a five-cent hot dog. But Nathan's dogs were good dogs. He just had to prove it. The street along his hot dog stand was a busy one, with people going to and fro constantly, and he worked out a way to show all of these passerbys that his hot dogs were clean and healthy. At least as healthy as a hot dog can be. He bought several white lab coats, you know, the type that a doctor or a scientist might wear, and then he paid people to sit at the tables outside of his shop wearing these lab coats and eating his hot dogs. Stunts like this worked. Well, that person there sure looks like they know what is healthy. Look at that coat! 
It's so white and crisp. Say, I'm feeling hungry for a hot dog. Have a nickel to spare? Before long, Nathan's hot dogs became famous. In fact, now they're known as Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs. But the fame didn't stop them from trying a few other stunts to get people's attention. Eventually, Nathan's children joined the family business, which had become a big success. So successful, in fact, that Nathan could take a nice long vacation and relax in Florida, leaving his son Murray to tend to the shop in 1954. Murray had inherited his dad's work ethic and penchant for promotion, and it seems the son wanted to make his dad proud by bringing in some extra business while he was gone. It happened very simply. Murray was approached by a man who had come into possession of a very large whale. Psst! Hey, buddy, do you want to buy a whale? It was a dead whale, and it had been somewhat hastily preserved with chemicals. In fact, the mammoth mammal had already turned Europe, attracting curious onlookers who had never been so close to such a mighty beast, dead or alive. This man with the whale knew Coney Island was full of curious people too, and he convinced Murray that the people would come out of their way to see this dead whale. It stood to reason that while they were there, they would probably be inclined to grab a hot dog and a soda from Nathan's hot dog joint. If this worked, and big business boomed on account of this formerly living 75-foot finback whale falling into his lap, Murray would definitely make his dad Nathan proud. So, Murray handworker bit, and a deal was worked out to display the large leviathan in a lot next to the hot dog stand. It worked at first as people poked and prodded the ponderous porpoise. There's even photos of children standing in its mouth. Looking at the photos, though, one might notice that the carcass, though preserved with chemicals, was beginning to deteriorate. And when a heat wave hit the area, oh, it was all downhill from there. The carcass began to smell bad. Like, really, really bad. So bad, in fact, that all those customers, well, they just steered clear of the area not only hurting hot dog sales at Nathan's, but also sales at several other nearby restaurants. The neighbors were unhappy. The city was unhappy. And when his dad Nathan got home from vacation, he was certainly unhappy. In fact, he was probably the unhappiest of them all. So in the end, Murray had to pay to mm, dispose of the whale. Luckily, none of it wound up in hot dogs. You need a dog, you need a bun, and then you put some mustard on. H-O-T-D-O-G, that's how you spell hot dog. It's quiz time, it's quiz time. It's quiz time, time, time. It's quiz time. Hot dog quiz. Hot dog quiz. Hot dog quiz. Every July 4th, Coney Island holds the annual hot dog eating competition, a display of excessiveness, 
and indigestion and other things, I guess. Competitive eating isn't new. In 1919, a baseball player known as Ping Brody entered a spaghetti eating contest with an animal. Can you guess which animal that was? Percy the ostrich was billed as the world's greatest eater, so Ping, who thought he should have the title, traveled to Florida to test his stomach against the giant bird. Ping won, beating Percy the ostrich after finishing 11 plates of pasta. Question number two. According to guidelines published by the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, how many bites should it take an adult to eat a standard hot dog? Along with advice on utensils, toppings, and pairings, the NHSC says it should take an adult five bites to eat a hot dog. Somebody tell that to Joey Chestnut. Question number three. There is one American city that consumes more hot dogs than anywhere else. What city do you think it is? It turns out Los Angeles, California consumes 34 million pounds of hot dogs in one year, leading the nation. Sometimes British royals ate simply, at least sort of. It is said that early in her life, Queen Victoria would typically eat bacon and egg for breakfast. Now, while you might eat that egg off of a plate or squished between two pieces of bread, Victoria's boiled egg was always served in a golden cup. And then the place of silverware, she would eat it with a spoon of solid gold. Pretty standard breakfast experience, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but most of my dishes are made of gold. More commonly, though, royalty did not eat quite this simply. As her life went on, Victoria's diet expanded, and eating became, in essence, her number one hobby. People say it was more common that she was eating than not, and her daily menus read like the fanciest restaurant you can imagine. One thing to note, though, if you happened to be sharing the table with her, it didn't matter where you were in your meal. If she was finished, you were done too. Put down the spoon and step away from the table. This sort of stuff is pretty common for kings and queens. Imagine you've got personal chefs, money is no object, everyone likes to impress you, and you typically have a lot of time on your hands. Again, it's a very similar situation that we can all identify with, right? Well, when Victoria's great-grandson, George VI, rose to the throne in 1936, he carried on the tradition of sumptuous and extravagant dining experiences. Have a listen to the menu from his royal luncheon in 1937. Ah yes, good day, your majesty. A very delicious meal today. The courses today will be as follows. Mayonnaise de homard, shelled boiled lobster, marinated filet d'agneau niçoise, filet chauffroid de poulet devonshire, cold dish of chicken suprême, The list goes on and on, with each dish seemingly richer and more unhealthy than the one before it. Small mutton decorated with rolled silver side pickled in juniper berries and cooked with vegetables, tongue, ham, and roast beef. And of course, pâté de pigeon, which is to say, pigeon pie. Over in America, in 1939, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor sent an invitation to King George and his wife Elizabeth. It was known that the king and queen would be in Canada, and Roosevelt thought that they might appreciate a break from important official meetings and such. 
Roosevelt's home away from the White House was in Hyde Park, New York, which isn't too far from Canada, really. Perhaps they'd like to come visit for some quiet country living, the Roosevelt asked. This sounded splendid to the royal family. Never in history had a king or queen of England traveled to America, so this was surely to be an occasion to remember, and it would be a fair bet that the menu would be both memorable and delicious. Many things happened during their visit, but perhaps the most famous is the picnic the two families shared with another 150 guests on the Roosevelt Lawn in New York State. Though the press was not invited, they went wild with speculation and first-hand accounts from people who were there. As others might do at a picnic on a hot June day, the president and the king stole away from the group to take a dip in the president's swimming pool. Oddly, it seems no one else joined them, so we don't know if others weren't invited or if they were too intimidated to swim beside such powerful people. Eh, they probably just forgot their bathing suits. After cooling off, they'd rejoin the group at the garden party to delight in what was surely to be a delicious menu of food. And it was. There was strawberry shortcake, smoked turkey, tomato salad, cranberry jam, and hot dogs. <laughs> hot dogs? Yep, hot dogs. You may ask, had King George ever had a hot dog before? Reports differ on that detail, but we'll address that later. Far more important of a matter was the gall it took to serve hot dogs at all, regardless of whether the royal family were first-timers. The American press got a hold of the menu in advance, and they questioned the wisdom of such an everyman and every woman's food. Many Americans were aghast at the idea of serving a hot dog to such royal hotshots. Heck, even Roosevelt's own mother was flabbergasted that the president would serve hot dogs to the king and queen of England. How undignified, how disrespectful, how common. Weren't they going to be expecting roasted quails with jelly or pigeon pies or creamy lobster over fancy something or other? Well, yes, and that's precisely why hot dogs were perfect. What could be more American and quaint than hot dogs on the front porch? To Americans, British royalty seems stuffy and antiquated. What other food could make a stuffy king seem approachable? So Roosevelt sent for his favorite, some Nathan's famous hot dogs from New York City, and planned to serve them to the 150 guests at the party, including George and Elizabeth. Now, according to one attendee, there were still a few royal moments. It seems the king and queen's hot dogs were served on silver platters, which is not too far off from Queen Victoria's golden spoon and cup. But upon looking at the hot dog, the queen became a bit confused and asked President Roosevelt the proper way to eat such a sandwich. First off, lady, it's not a sandwich, it's a hot dog. Oh, sorry, that's what we would have said. Again, there weren't reporters there, so this is hearsay. But according to guests, the president wasn't much more formal in his response. To the queen, he'd said something along the lines of, You push it into your mouth and keep pushing until it's gone. The king, on the other hand, relished the dish and asked for a second hot dog. He clearly had some ketchup to play. Hey, it's 1939, these were the jokes. As we've said, some people claim that this was the first hot dog for the king, but hot dog history can be kind of smoky. And you surely know that there are many similar tubular meats. The issue came up during a press conference, and the British ambassador answered the burning question head-on in a frank manner. It would be the first time the Majesties ever ate such a food under that name. And he added, But under any other name, they taste just as sweet. Frankfurter, Frank, Red Hot, Grandstander, Showboat, Sausage, Weenie. They apparently were all welcome at their majesty's dinner table. The fateful day helped shape politics, as it helped solidify the bond between America and Great Britain headed towards World War II. But it also had some humorous results. The NRMDA, which as you know, of course, was the National Retail Meat Dealer Association, made an appeal to the king. 
They begged him to remember his wonderful hot dog-flavored afternoon and officially requested a resolution on his part. According to a release in the New York Times, the association wanted him to <clears throat> knight the hot dog. What better way to raise this lowly food from every table in America to the gilded table of the king? Dub him Sir Hot Dog, they pleaded, even attempting to get five million signatures in flavor, I, I mean in favor of the knighthood. No word on a tiny tubular set of armor. Now, we can all recognize the absurdity of this, but they had one solid argument. The New York Times article finished with this zinger. Precedent for such actions, the butchers explained, is to be found in the action of King James I in 1609 at Houghton Castle, when the sovereign conferred knighthood on the loin, which has been known as Sirloin ever since. Again, 1939. I mean, he was probably the first guy to tell that joke. Walking 
was made. Hey, thanks again for listening to The Past and the Curious. Hope you enjoyed the show. It was a lot of fun to put together. We have to thank some Patreon sponsors. First off, we need to thank Julie. A sincere and grateful thank you. We also need to thank Andrew, Vicky, Carson, and Olivia, better known as the Winklers. Yeah, Winklers! And I have a very special message for my friends out in Portland, Cassie and Mike. What's not to lie about Cassie and Mike? What's not to love? I just can't seem to get enough of you. So there you have it. Find us on Patreon. Find us on social media. And find our friends at kidslisten.org. I'm Mick Sullivan, and thank you for listening to The Past and the Curious.